0: This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level.
1: Happy Thursday, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. This is the show where we reach deep into the morass of futures, forex, markets, and trader psychology and pull out the tastiest bits of wisdom from the industry professionals who know them best. My name is Jack Pelzer, uh, more or less the receptionist for this podcast, so allow me to offer you our warmest greetings before I kick things over to our real host, the esteemed Jeff Carter, for the Limit Up interview. By the way, we have an amazing guest today, a man who is certainly no stranger to this medium, Because in fact, he is the host of the Daily FX podcast, which you can find over at dailyfx.com or wherever podcasts are sold for free. Our guest today has also spent more than 40 years analyzing and writing about financial markets. And you'd better believe that he is analyzing with an S because he is based across the pond in lovely London, England. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, the BBC, I could go on and on about his accomplishments, but instead, I will just go ahead and reveal that our guest today is none other than Martin Essex. (laughs) Jeff and Martin are going to get down to it, so much so that we needed to split this episode across two installments just for the sake of time. This is going to be a very trading and technical-focused pair of episodes that will probably help you make the best of these markets. And what markets we have right now. The trade war is real, people. The Fed's doing Fed things, so how should we make sense of it all? Thankfully, I have just the man to bring us all up to speed. His name's Mark Meadows, and he's about to enlighten us with his market reaction. But first, just one last reminder that we're celebrating our seventh birthday here at Top Step Trader, and that means we're still offering huge, staggering, monumental discounts on all of our trading combine and reset bundles for a limited time. Don't have too much longer to do that, actually. So now would be the perfect time to get out there, get a big old discount, and take advantage of these huge swings we're seeing. What type of market swings? Mark Meadows, let the people know what's going
2: on out there. From trading for so many years, you realize that some central banks have personalities. The Federal Reserve likes to telegraph its moves. The Bank of Japan is prone to intervene in forex markets. And the Reserve Bank of New Zealand is a complete wild card sometimes. They love to surprise the market, and that's exactly what they did on Tuesday when they slashed their interest rates by 50 basis points amidst slowing growth and low inflation. Not just that, but that takes their interest rate down to 1% on its way to negative territory. What this tells you is something is happening in the global economy. Things are not going as well as you would think if you're in the United States. And that's why the Fed cut rates two weeks ago. There's the old adage that if the U.S. has a cold, the world catches it. But what we're going to find out in the next year is what happens when the world has a cold. Does the U.S. catch it? Or can the Fed help the world recover? Central banks are certainly on the case. Can they save us from a deep recession? I don't know. In this, my view is to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And as always, follow price action to tell me where markets are going. And that's your market reaction. Thank you, Mark. I think we can all agree that
1: experience is important in trading as well as pretty much every other human endeavor worth doing. Our hosts and guests today have more than 70 years of trading experience between them. So I think it's safe to say that they know what they're talking about. And given these kind of markets we're seeing lately, I would say it's definitely a discussion worth giving a listen. So, my friends, I invite you now to join today's Top Step interview between our very own Jeff Carter and the host of the Daily FX podcast, Mr. Martin
0: Essex. Good afternoon. Welcome to another edition of the Limit Up podcast brought to you by Top Step Trader here in Chicago, Illinois. My name is Jeff Carter. I'm a general partner at Westloopventures.com and uh, used to be a floor trader in a previous life today on the program we have martin essex he is an analyst at the daily fx and he's also host of his own podcast the daily fx and uh, he just took that over from tyler yell five weeks ago he's based in london and he's been uh writing about the economy for longer than most of you have been alive martin welcome to the program that
3: makes me sound very old
0: Yeah, well, I'm older. I I trust you. (laughs) (laughs) So I was just watching the moonwalk, you know, and and somebody said, how old were you? And I said, I was seven. Do you remember the moonwalk? I mean, when Apollo landed?
3: Uh, I hate to say this. I hate to say this, but I'm actually older than you then, but only by a few years. I think I was 11 when it took off.
0: Okay. All right. Great. It's about the same generation. So we don't have to use that new... Face app or whatever to figure out what we're going to look like older because we're already there. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in London. How did you get interested? I'm always curious about how people come to finance. Like for myself, I was a little kid. I'd wake up super early and I watched Orion Samuelson on the farm report here in Chicago and they'd show pictures of the trading floor and he'd talk about Labor Day feeders and pork bellies and stuff like that. And it just, oh, it was enthralling to me. How did you come into finance? How did you get interested in it?
3: Well, my interest principally was mathematics. And so I was going to do um, courses in uh, maths and physics and chemistry and so on. And my father said to me, well, just in case you don't want to be a scientist, why don't you do something else like economics? So I thought, oh, okay then. So I then studied maths and physics and economics. And suddenly I found, actually, this economics is actually pretty interesting. So It is, isn't it? It is indeed. That's why I went on to study um, mathematical economics at university. And I came out and uh, I thought, okay, that's very good. What do I do with it? So I went to a journalism school and I thought, well, I can combine economics with journalism. And so I became a financial journalist.
0: Awesome. I love economics myself. You know, I have some very good friends that are professors at the University of Chicago you know, PhD, Chicago econ, Chicago school guys,
3: what is the most intriguing thing to you about economics? Well, I loved talking to um, various people who knew a lot more than I did. So um, I would go to meetings of, G7, IMF World Bank, and uh, I'd meet all these amazing people, politicians, central bankers, economists, and-
0: Not that politicians know anything about economics.
3: Well, that's true. I I I used to go to um, weekly meetings at um, number 11 Downing Street, which is where our finance ministers live, and I'd have weekly briefings from them. And I have to say, I agree with you. I was always amazed by how little they did actually know. But on the other hand, I've met central bankers and all sorts of other people who are really very, very clever and uh, some economics professors and all sorts of different people. And I just thought, do you know what? I would really like to know as much as you do. And so I tried to learn as much as they do. Not that I think I ever succeeded, but uh, I learned enough to make it really interesting. Yeah. I think like, the cool thing about
0: economics is if if you disagree, if you understand how the other person is framing their argument and where they're sort of coming from, you can understand it and you can start to get like not critical like hypercritical beat up on each other, but you can critically understand it and come to some sort of resolution, so like when you see somebody like John Cochran who is with the Hoover Institution and talks about how the multiplier effect of government spending is zero and how do you create that dollar. And then you have sort of Lawrence Summers on the other side arguing. It's fascinating. They're both very smart, capable people. And you just have to understand where they're coming from.
3: I have a friend in New Zealand who's a professor of economics there. And he is well, he's rather rude about the state of modern economics. He thinks that all you have to do to be published in the economic journals, which is what academic economists want to do, is to spout the same theory that everybody else is producing. And there is no scope for something different. So he thinks that if you do have new ideas, that don't fit into that sort of model that we all have at the moment, you just can't get published and you can't get promoted. And so he thinks that that's really stopping people, academic economists, from coming up with new ideas. Yes, there are arguments within economics, but it's all within the same structure. And he would argue, and I think I agree, that modern economics by and large does not work very well And what we need is new thinking, but the whole system mitigates against that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I um, was not acquainted with Gary Becker, but met him a few times. He was a fascinating guy. His initial kind of groundbreaking research was in 1962 on the economics of discrimination. And I was at the brown bag lunch that my friend Vishal Verma put on at uh, University of Chicago when he discussed immigration and he talked about in the U S how our immigration system is broken. This is back in 2007 or eight and how we needed to fix it and that we should charge for it because there was a supply for immigrants and demand for immigrants. And so where there's supply and demand, there's a market and it was just absolutely groundbreaking. And there's a YouTube video um, when he was in Great Britain at the, I think it's called the Hayek lecture and he gave it. You could hear the air go out of the room when he kind of proffered that theory up. But when you think about it, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. And I think you're right. You know, we kind of are retreading the same old ground instead of applying economics to different things like Becker did. Um, Rest in peace, Gary Becker. Uh, Where would you apply it differently, do you think?
3: I was trained, as I said, as a financial journalist, and that means I was originally a reporter. So if I wanted to know what was going on or what was expected to happen, I would ask, say, three different people and I'd write up the standard economist on the one hand, on the other hand, story. But first of all, I knew I could cheat because I knew who was on which side of the argument. So if I wanted to write about Are interest rates going to go up or are they going to go down? I knew who to ask because I knew which people expected them to go up and which people expected them to go down. And then later, when I became uh, the economics editor of a paper, I started writing in the same way. And my editor came over and, (laughs) not physically, banged my head on the desk and said, I don't want to know on the one hand and on the other hand, I want to know what you think, And this was news to me. I mean, reporters do not do um, what do I think. Only columnists do that. And suddenly there was I as as a columnist. And I had to change my mind completely, my mindset completely. I had to think, okay, what do I really think about this? So here we are in the wake still of the 2008 financial crisis. Do you have signs since then that people actually know what they're doing, people in charge? Do they know how to conduct monetary policy? Do they know how to conduct uh, fiscal policy? And I think you have to say, by and large, the answer is no. We have negative interest rates in countries like Switzerland and Japan. How does that work? How is that seriously expected to boost their economies when it hasn't already? You have Japan in particular plowing more and more and more money into the economy and nothing has happened. Do those policymakers know what they're doing?
0: I know. It's since the 90s, right? I mean, Japan imploded in the 90s, and, and they've been doing the same thing over and over. It's absolutely crazy. I totally agree. I think the people in the central bank sort of – I feel like or at least – well, I don't know this. I want to have the confidence that they know what they're doing. On the other side, I think the policymakers, they have no control over them, and they're sort of reacting to what they do. So for instance, Trump does a bunch of tariffs, which clearly in any classical economic structure is a bad idea because the costs are passed on to consumers, right? And so now we've got a roaring stock market, we've got low unemployment, and the Fed's talking about cutting interest rates. And I'm like, well, if the tariffs weren't there, maybe we would be raising interest rates, you know? I mean, and fiscally, I mean, what government is secure? I'm sitting in the state of Illinois in the city of Chicago, which is the most fiscally corrupt and irresponsible government probably on the face of the earth. So uh, other than maybe Zambia or something like that, but or Zambia. So I think you're totally right about
3: that. But look, at least in the United States, you have the opportunity to cut interest rates if you need to. Because you've pushed them up, you can now lower them. But in the Eurozone, in Japan, in other countries – rates are zero or less than zero. So they can't cut interest rates anymore. I mean, you could argue the Fed's done a pretty good job in pushing them up when it could so that it can cut them now. Other countries don't have that.
0: Yeah. And we had zero interest rates for the entirety of Obama's term, basically. I mean, an interesting thing to me is how, uh, at least in America, Under Obama, we had an expansion of the regulatory state. And under Trump so far, we've had kind of a deconstruction of the regulatory state and how that's freeing up capital and lowering the cost of doing business. And I I wonder if Europe could do something like that or if the bureaucrats in Brussels are just too tied up in knots over that stuff. What do you think?
3: Okay, let me put an idea to you. We've all believed for decades now, that central banks should be independent. But you could argue that if fiscal policy and monetary policy were pulling in the same direction, it would be much more efficient. So what we often have at the moment, I, I think you have in America, correct me if this isn't right, but Donald Trump is spending more money or wants to spend more money. And the Federal Reserve is pushing back on that you have the two entirely separate. You have um, fiscal policy on one side, you have monetary policy on the other. Now, Donald Trump has suggested that, well, he seems to be suggesting that he'd like more control over the Fed. And everybody goes, oh, no, you can't do that. We must have independent central banks. But in much of Asia, central banks are not independent. I don't think anybody thinks that the People's Bank of China is independent from the Chinese government.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely not.
3: (laughs) And arguably, it's not in Japan either. I mean, you could argue that even though it is theoretically independent, I think you could say that it's influenced by the government and the government is influenced by Japanese business and so on. Well, why do we assume that we're right and they're wrong? Why do we assume that the system works better when its central banks are independent I never thought I'd say this, but maybe Trump is right. I mean, maybe the government should have more control over the central bank. I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying we need to think in those different ways before we just say, the system we have is right, we're not going to change it.
0: Actually, that's not a bad idea to chew over. I would never really thought deeply about that myself personally, but it's one of those things when you put it out in the news, everybody goes berserko. And in, in, in the United States right now, we're in two separate tribes that fight all the time, tooth and nail over everything. So I don't know that you could think deeply about it. I mean, that's the problem that you run into. Um, I went to an interesting thing at the University of Chicago uh, put on by Luigi Zingales on regulation of big tech. And I walked in to the conference thinking we should not regulate big tech at all. And I walked out seeing some room for regulation. And I thought that the clash of ideas at that conference was very, very interesting at the Stigler Center there. And I wonder if we could do that with central banks and macroeconomics
3: or not. Well, indeed. And I also worry about economic forecasting. To take an example, as you know, here in the UK, we're about to leave the EU. There have been forecasts of doom and gloom for as lo- well ever since before the vote, and people have been saying the economy will collapse. The economy, it, you know, this will be an absolute disaster for the UK. And I was thinking, um, well, possibly, but first of all, that hasn't been proven in in the the years now since we voted to leave the EU. Uh, the economy is not doing very well. That's true. But it's not collapsed either. There's no recession here. There's no depression here. So all these forecasters, and I'm talking about the very top forecasters, people like the IMF and so on, you're wrong. How could you possibly have got it so wrong? And it does seem to me that we don't understand seriously how the system works. So How can you manage a system when you don't really understand how it works? I agree
0: with you 100%. Paul Krugman here when Trump was elected called for, you know, a stock market crash. I'm sitting here at my desk looking at a book called The Rotten Heart of Europe by Bernard Connolly that was written before the EU, which my friend Ira Harris, who's an FX trader, really, really recommends to anybody. And Ira talks about the IMF getting it wrong consistently over time as far back as the 80s. So I don't, I don't really, I agree with you. I don't know how much confidence I have.
3: And here, the Bank of England and the UK Treasury, and uh, I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily, but I guess the US Treasury as well and the FOMC as well. I mean, I'm sure these people, they ought to, their models ought to be better. Now, as I said, I studied mathematical economics, and that includes econometrics. And I think the main thing I learned from that was that the models don't work. Especially if they're, if they're too complicated. Maybe a very simple model works, but these really complicated models they have, we just don't know enough about the subject. And that's disgraceful. Too
0: many variables.
3: Yeah, precisely.
0: I wonder if the inputs, like I look at, you know, or hear the debates on government accounting or whatever, and, and those are accounting numbers, not economic numbers, you know, total up with opportunity costs and taking into full account. And I wonder if, if they're using sort of a static analysis rather than a dynamic analysis to look at things in forecast, and then that's why they're always wrong. I don't know.
3: My current job at DailyFX is to analyze financial markets. And I, I think I break the mold by looking at a whole variety of different factors when determining whether the dollar is going to go up or the dollar is going to go down. So given my background, you won't be surprised to know that I look at economic factors. So I look at the data. I also listen to what central bankers are saying, but I also use technical analysis. Now, I I qualified as a member of the Society of Technical Analysts as another way of looking at things. Now, a lot of people throw up their hands in horror at that. How can you use both economics and technical analysis? Because they give you different answers. But I think you have to technical analysts will say, oh, forget the data, it's all in the price. And economists will say, ah, that technical analysis, it's all magic, black magic. But I I honestly think you can can combine the two. Economics will give you a broad idea of what's going on. Technical analysis will provide you with entry and exit points and targets and where to put your stops and all that. Also, I think you need to look at geopolitics. You need to look at what's going on in the US-China trade war or what's going on in the Gulf, in Iran. And you need to look at market sentiment. So you need to look at all the figures on how optimistic people are, how they're positioned in the market. It's very difficult to combine all those things. But I really think if you want to know what's going on in markets, you have to, you have to th- combine everything. Just to give you just one example, um, if a price has been going up for a long time, Technical analysts will say, ah, it's in a trend, it's trending higher, so we expect it to go higher. An economist might say, oh, no, it's too high now, it'll revert to mean, whatever that means. So the two disciplines are telling you precisely the opposite. But I think if you get into the minds of the market, if you can think of it that way, the market looks at all those things and it makes its decision. Somebody said to me just the other day, well, isn't the dollar going to go down because the Fed's going to cut interest rates? Well, you know better than I do. That's nonsense because the markets already know there's going to be an interest rate cut. They know there's going to be a quarter point cut. There might even be a half point cut. So, no, the dollar's not going to go down necessarily when the Fed cuts by a quarter at the end of this month. It it might, but it's, you know this phrase, it's all in the price.
0: Right. And the academics would tell you that the price today anticipates every known piece of information that people can ascertain and drops it into the market. And then the floor trader would tell you, buy the rumor, sell the fact, Um, or sell the rumor, buy the fact, whatever. Uh, So it's no surprise that if the Fed has said, looks like we could cut, that the dollar's already moved to that point. Same thing happens with interest rates. Um, I'm sure the Fed funds rate right now, I haven't looked, is pricing in a a quarter rate cut at the next meeting.
3: Precisely. And I think that's why beginners in in trading, whether it's forex or commodities or stocks, so often get it wrong because they use these very simple equations and they need to know what they're doing. And by and large, if you're a new retail trader, you don't know what you're doing.
0: yeah that's for sure (laughs) so
3: read up on it for heaven's sake please read up on it there's education everywhere for free you can buy books you can look on the internet you can watch youtube you'll get lots and lots of information and just to give you an example i got an email from somebody um a few weeks ago who said i had two hundred dollars i invested it in the market I lost $160. Now I only have $40 left. That's all the money I have in the world. What should I do? And I was thinking, I can't even begin to answer that question. First of all, $200 is not enough to start trading. Secondly, you can't just make a bet one way or the other. You need to diversify. And of course, you can't do that with $200. What's the point of asking me when you have $40 left? Because if you'd come to me when you've had when you had two hundred, I'd have said, "Don't do it so i I just reiterate this, please, if you're beginning to trade, read up first, know what you're doing, understand the markets, don't just go on a gut instinct that says, "Oh, the u k is heading for Brexit, therefore I'll sell sterling. might you that would have been a good trade, but you know what I mean
0: yeah, right, exactly, but you know it's interesting top step trader um allows people to paper trade. And when I was on the floor, as a clerk, we used to paper trade, but you never, it was always kind of like, meh. I I don't know. I never got a lot out of it. But what they found is uh, with rookie traders that have no concept of what's going on in the markets, it really does help them acclimate and sort of build up some confidence and get sort of a feel. Um, I think so much of trading is a, a flow thing.
1: Traders. Thank you for making it all the way to the 19th hole of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. We're certainly glad that you took some time out of your no doubt busy schedule to join us and hopefully learn a little more about the wide world of trading. If you did find any of this even mildly enlightening, we'd love to see you come back and or uh, share this podcast with your friends. That'd be great if you could just go over and rate or subscribe Limit Up on iTunes. You could join our ultra-exclusive Top Step Trading community on Facebook. Or check out the morning show, the morning preview with John Hoagland and Dan Hodgman on YouTube at 8.15 each morning. They also have a recap in the afternoon. Basically, we're just trying to form a more close-knit community, and we'd love to have you all be a part of it. So we look forward to seeing you back here, same time, same place, next week, to discuss whatever new catastrophes or miracles of human ingenuity are making the markets move. But until then, I encourage you all to have a nice weekend, take care of yourself, namaste, and trade well.
0: This episode produced by Dante32.